Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. It's not every day that you get to talk to one of the world's most successful record producers. And it's even rarer that the person we're going to talk to today also, in her mid-40s, shifted and went and got a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. You can probably already imagine why I am so excited to talk to Susan Rogers today. Now, you might wonder what a record producer would bring to a PhD in neuroscience. But in order to find out, you just have to read her book, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Because, of course, she spent her career listening and figuring out which tracks, which aspects of sound are going to make the next hit. And then she went and studied psychoacoustics and learned exactly how the brain turns a sound wave into the sublime experience of music. I can't imagine a better person to walk us through the music that we love, why it matters, and the science behind this almost universal human obsession. Susan Rogers is now a professor at Berklee College of Music, as well as a multi-platinum record producer. Susan Rogers, I am so thrilled to welcome you to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me on this podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I love the topic, and there's lots to say about it. I want to jump right into one part of your book that when I read, it set off so many light bulbs in my head, you know, metaphorically speaking, and really just got me hooked. So tell us about the time that you met Miles Davis in Prince's studio. <laughs> I'll never forget that day. It was pretty exciting. Um, so the year was, this would have been early 1987, and I was working for Prince as his full-time audio technician, recording engineer. So um, he Prince called. Uh, he said, come on over to the house and pull out these tapes out of the vault because uh, Miles Davis is coming over for dinner and I want to be able to play some music downstairs when we're done in the studio. So I pulled the tapes and I uh, was waiting downstairs in the home studio and um, I could hear the voices up above me. Uh, it was Prince, Miles, and um, Prince's dad, John Nelson, who's a, who's a piano player about Miles' age. So anyway, I heard the, the feet on the stairs and Prince came running downstairs and he looked at me and he had that face that just said, 
you will not believe this. And he kind of pointed over his shoulder. So his dad and Miles came down and uh, Miles parked himself right in front of me. I was standing next to the tape machine and uh, Miles stood right in front of me. I could have just reached out and put my hand on his shoulder and he had his back to me and he was facing John Nelson. And they were talking about pants. And John Nelson was telling Miles, I love those pants you have. They both kind of talk like this. I love those striped pants. Miles says, what striped pants? You know, striped pants. Where'd you see me in striped pants? On TV. We're on TV. I saw you at the Grammys. And they're going back and forth about these striped pants. And all of a sudden, you know, Miles is insisting he doesn't have any striped pants. But all of a sudden, he spins around, Miles does, and he put his face, that incredible face, face with those big eyes, that intense stare that he had. He put his face right in front of my face. And he said, yes, I do. They're made out of eel, like in Vietnam. I said, eel, like in Vietnam, because those words just don't go together. (laughs) Pants made of eel, like in Vietnam. So I just held my ground and I kept my face right there. And he started firing off questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? How long you been here? And I fired back answers. And we're going back and forth, back and forth really quickly. And then he goes, you musician? And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, that's okay. Some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians. And that was the moment where I knew that your book was going to tell us something that no one else is either <laughs> capable of doing or has told us before. <laughs> oh, that makes me that makes me glad to hear. Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a musician, but my relationship to music my entire life, from childhood till, till today has been as a listener. And it eventually, over the years, slowly dawned on me that what Miles said could apply to me. So I'm a non-musician. I don't play or write or sing, but I'm musical mm-hmm. as a listener. I'm a good interpreter of music. That's what you do in the recording studio. And that's what you do as a, as a diehard music lover. So you get really good at scanning that signal that you're hearing and interpreting, this is what it sounds like to me. And I I hoped with this book to make it clear to the readers, I don't need you to think about my own taste in music because this book isn't about that. Why would you care? It's about your taste in music. And I'm helping you to go through that, that mental process of understanding why you like what you like. And there are sort of two reasons why I found this so compelling. One is just that I don't think that up until, you know, I read your book, I understood how much we already know about the way in which music listening is a skill that gets developed and that can, you know, essentially just like learning to play an instrument, learning to listen to music, you know, has its own training patterns, its own, you know, peaks and valleys, et cetera. But also because it gets at the one part of music that I find, uh, you know, pretty, pretty aversive and nauseous. And that is that, you know, I, I was trained as an opera singer uh, and, you know, that, you know, for, for a lot of my life and still today, you know, I spent a lot of time training and, and thinking about how to produce this vocal sound that I hear in my head. And when people find that out or, or often actually after they've heard me sing, they will come up and and say to me, you know, um, I really like Adele. Uh, can she sing? <laughs> I'm like, 
what does it matter if some like nobody opera singer that you know, yeah, like in my own little niche, there's this thing that I've spent a lot of time trying to do thinks about your taste in singing. Like it's it's like what sure, I I can talk about how she's using her diaphragm or whether her soft palate is lifted, but that ultimately has nothing to do with singing, you know, with like this expression. That's such an interesting comment. It reminds me of many years ago, early in my professional career, I asked a a singer, an experienced singer, to please tell me about Barbara Streisand. Tell me why Barbara Streisand was regarded as being such a great singer. Can you tell me technically what is it she's doing that lifts her above others? And it's it's, it's a valid question because the person is wanting to say, I hear this as being great, but I'm untrained. I don't know what I'm talking about. Can you tell me, is it truly great or or is it just me? Or is it just, you know, a cultural phenomenon? Everyone says she's great, so she must be great. And this person was kind enough to explain to me, here are the technical skills that Barbara Streisand possesses that lead us to call her great. And that, that was a generous kind of a generous response because she was giving me something. She was teaching me something about how vocals work and what we listen for. And I guess maybe I I should see it that way and Mm. think about what it is that I can add. I think the thing that chafes at me is that somehow my opinion seems to matter on something so personal. And, you know, I want to reach out and give the person a hug and say, it's okay to like the music you like, (laughs) regardless of what anyone else thinks. I know. And I, I, one of the things that makes me feel so sad is when people will preface a conversation about music by saying, Oh, you know, I don't, I don't know much about music or I'm not, I don't have very good musical taste. I just like pop. Hang on just a minute here <laughs> because pop music is made by some of our most successful and virtuoso and talented and trained music makers. To have a hit record on the pop charts is no accident, just like having a hit movie. So if, if all you liked cinematically was, was the blockbusters or maybe the Avengers or whatever the superhero movies are, if that's all you like, what's wrong with that? So you don't go to art house films. So what? Who cares? You like what you like and it's good. I don't like to hear people put down their taste in music. Totally agree. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit, you know, one of the other things that 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 really struck me in the beginning um, is that you were uh, an audio engineer and you were, you are a woman. <laughs> and that was a rarity at the time. Uh, I think it's still relatively, you know, I think there's still a skew, uh, you know, in terms of the, the population of, of audio engineers. And Prince happened to be one of your favorite musicians. And then this opportunity came up. And I I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what it was like to be a woman audio engineer and then what it was like to to be lifted up in a sense by someone, uh, you know, like Prince. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, really amazing. So I was living and working in Hollywood at that time. And at that time was 
1983, when I got the call, I'd been at it for about five years working as an audio technician, which is even more rare. A female audio technician is even more rare than a recording engineer. I was the person who repaired the equipment. I repaired consoles and tape machines, and that was that was my job. Self-taught in audio electronics and taught by some really great technicians out in L.A. Anyway, at that time, Prince was my favorite artist in the whole world. I had all his albums. I'd seen him live on the Dirty Mind tour and the 1999 tour. I just was a huge fan. And one day I got a phone call from another technician in L.A. who said, you know, your dream job is waiting for you. Prince is looking for an audio technician, someone to be his full-time tech, move to Minnesota. And I said, well, then his search is over because that's my job. And I got that job. So it was Prince who transitioned me from being a technician, that's who I was when he hired me, into the role of recording engineer. He liked working with women. He liked working with outsiders. And as you said, being a woman <laughs> in, in the recording studio, you were a pretty rare bird. You should have seen what it looked like back in 83. <laughs> you just didn't see a lot of women in those roles. But I was one, and I knew my stuff, and he liked that. And um, I was a, a Prince fan. I, I liked the same kind of music he liked, and I could hang. I could hang those late night hours with him and do those 24-hour sessions because I was, I was in my dream job. So, yeah. And lest anyone who's listening thinks, oh, it must be some lesser known Prince album. <laughs> Why don't you tell us what was the album that you <laughs> worked with him on? Well, the very first recording I did with him is on the Purple Rain album. So he had just come off the 1999 tour and he was... Um, He'd gotten the green light from Warner Brothers to make his movie Purple Rain, and he had already recorded some of the songs for the album Purple Rain. He was planning the movie and the tour and all that, so I jumped right in um, to an intense work environment. That train was moving really fast. Uh, we didn't know at the time. You never know if a record's going to be a hit. You certainly didn't know if the movie was going to be a hit. It turned out that they both were, and um, that album had, I think, the sixth longest run in all of... Um, the Billboard magazine's history. It was number one for 24 weeks. So we worked on, uh, together we worked on Purple Rain and Around the World in a Day and the Parade album and Sign of the Times, which is considered by critics to be his other masterpiece. And we did all the recording with all the other artists that he worked with at that time, his protege bands like The Time and uh, Vanity Six, later Apollonia Six and Sheila E. and we did a lot of work in those four years when I was with him. So tell me what it's like for you or what it was like for you. Um, in the studio, he's playing, you're listening. How are you using your skills to do your job? Can you describe that? Hmm. Well, with Prince, you always have to um, issue a qualifier and you have to say the way it was with Prince is not the way it is with most recording artists. I mean, he was truly, truly exceptional. And now with my neuroscience training, I believe that he is what we would label a hyper-creative, which involves some, which we can talk about at another, another moment, but um, it involves some different uh, circuits in the brain. Anyway, he was so facile on so many different instruments. He was so quick his decision-making process was so instantaneous and usually spot on that he moved really quickly from one instrument to the next, to the next, to the next. That's if we were in a recording studio. If we were at rehearsal, he'd be directing his band on stage 
and then we'd be recording there. But a typical day in the studio would often involve him coming in, either playing an acoustic drum kit or programming the drum machine, adding bass, adding keys, adding guitars, adding his lead vocal, adding all his background vocals. He might call in Eric Leeds or someone to do horn parts or Wendy and Lisa to do additional parts or backing vocals. But he, he frequently played and sang everything on the record. Now, as we're working this way, I'm simultaneously sculpting the sound to help it be exactly what he wants it to be. Because I joined him as a technician, I had no artistic ear of my own. So I had no preconceived notion of how a recording engineer selects what's good and what's bad when it comes to sound. And that was perfect for Prince because he could teach me his ear. And so like, would he come over and say, I want it to sound like this and you should boost this level and you should turn that down? Or was it, you know, how, how did how did that communication work? Prince was very, very hands-on sitting behind the console, but he couldn't always have his hands on the console because most of the time he had his hands on a musical instrument. So uh, I would push sound around a bit, uh, conforming to his ear while he was playing. And then after he finished playing and we were mixing, he'd take what I had started with and he would lean over and add a little more reverb or add a, a little less of this or that. But if he wanted something, he'd ask me, can we get more of this or less of that? And he didn't technically know how to achieve that. So I would dial in sounds that I think I would think he would like. You know, I'd try different reverb settings and things like that. And uh, I, I knew when to use a compressor and when to use a limiter and um, that sort of thing. So um, I'm, it sounds like maybe like I'm being overly modest, but I'm not. I'm emphasizing that he very much pushed that paint around on that canvas to get the ultimate picture he was aiming for. What I supplied and other engineers supplied uh, was a technical knowledge that he didn't know. So he would ask for something and we knew how, how to achieve the thing he was asking for. And as you've described it, in a sense, he taught you his ear. Um, and so exactly. I want to talk a little bit about ears and what that means, because, of course, a lot of the hearing that we do is not in our ears. It's in our brains. And there are these loops between our brains and our inner ear. So can you just walk us through, for those of our listeners who, who maybe aren't familiar, you know, how does the sound wave get translated into the neural language, and then how does the brain go back and influence what it is that the, that the inner ear pays attention to? It's so marvelous how that happens. The more I learn about it, the more excited I get about it because it's so beautiful. So every sound you've ever heard in your life has started with an acoustic pressure wave in the air. Just those air molecules sitting there minding their own business, nobody's bothering them, until Something in that room starts to vibrate, which can be a loudspeaker or it can be someone's voice or whatever. There's something vibrating. And now those poor little molecules are getting pushed back and forth. Oh, I anthropomorphize everything. So they're going back and forth in this little pattern. And that ultimately results in a pattern of back and forth activity on your eardrum. And then from there, it's connected to the three bones of the middle ear. And they're doing their little thing going back and forth. And that's connected. Inside the cochlea, there's like, it kind of looks like a long tongue. It's a long membrane that runs through that snail-shaped cochlea. And that little membrane, the basilar membrane, is being bounced up and down, up and down in that pattern. 
of activity. And sitting on top of that basilar membrane, there's a single row of inner hair cells, which I like to think of as your analog to digital converter, because those little things, little hair cells, they're so-called because they have stereocilia, they look like hairs on top of the little cell, they're bouncing up and down. And as they bounce up and down in that pattern, here's where it gets really cool. The little hairs on the top are swinging back and forth and back and forth with every up and down motion of the wave. As the little hairs swing back and forth, those wee little hairs are connected by wee little springs called tip links. And those on the one half of the cycle, the little springs expand. And on the other half of the cycle, when it goes negative, they contract. So positive, negative, positive, negative, expand, contract, expand, contract, which opens little pores in the little hairs, which lets charged ions, sodium, potassium, things like that, come calcium, come into the little hairs, which drifts down to the bottom of the inner hair cell, releases neurotransmitters, and there waiting at the base of the inner hair cell is the auditory nerve bundle. So for each inner hair cell, there's between six and 10 nerves sitting there waiting for that signal. And those neurotransmitters get released from the base of the inner hair cell into the gap. Oh, and then, <laughs> so exciting, then the, um, the, the nerve cells, the receptive end, the dendrites, they open their own little channels now you got a nerve spike. So on each side, coming out of our left and our right ears, is uh, an auditory nerve bundle that you can think of as your wiring. 30,000, roughly, auditory nerves on each side. So now this signal, which is now a digital signal, is coming up as a pattern of activity collected from the 3,500 inner hair cells in each cochlea. And now that pattern of activity is going up. Now, the interesting thing about the auditory system is, if that weren't interesting enough, is that compared to visual, there's a lot of little processing stations, way stations, that have to deal with that signal and make decisions about it on the way up to the brain. Starting with the cochlear nucleus, it's analyzing your low frequencies, your mids and your highs, and it goes up. The next station is the superior olive, and that's super cool because it's comparing the signal from the left and right ears and figuring out where in space that sound source is coming from. Then it goes up to your inferior colliculus and that little home girl, using a 90s colloquialism here, that little home girl is getting inputs from your two ears, but also getting the efferent signal that's coming down from your brain to help you decide what it is you want to pay attention to and what you want to ignore. So that little thing, the inferior colliculus is getting all kinds of inputs. And then the signal, and this part's cool, leaves the inferior colliculus and goes up through the limbic system. It goes up through the, through the thalamus, the medial geniculate nucleus of the thalamus. And that region then compares what you're hearing with what you're seeing. And it finally gets up to your auditory cortex. And once it's up here, right above your ears, then higher order circuits can decide is this familiar or unfamiliar? Do I like it or hate it? Do I want to listen to it? Do I want to turn this off? Is there something else that's taking precedence? So those higher order circuits can then tell your auditory cortex, ignore this, I want to hear that. You send a signal back down the chain, which terminates at the outer hair cells of the cochlea. And those little things are even more amazing 
they function a little bit like your D to A converters. They get a digital input of nerve spikes. Their output is mechanical, pushing and pulling on regions of the basilar membrane that correspond to the source you want to be listening to. It's absolutely incredible because so many things have to happen, and yet your auditory system is working so hard for you. It's kind of a beautiful thing. And it's so fast. And that does allow us to selectively hear things. Like if you're, you know, we call it the cocktail party effect. You're in a room with a whole bunch of people and somebody says your name from across the room at the same decibel level as the people around you. Normally you would think you should not be able to hear that particular sound because there's all this noise that you're, that you're listening to. And of course we are limited into how much we can pay attention. And yet you're, you pick it up. And then you tune in. Yeah, I remember learning in grad school that there are certain circuits in our auditory brain that are particularly sensitive to sounds that are very important in our world. So when people are talking about money, about sex, or when they're talking, uh, they mention our name, there are circuits that pick up on that nerve pattern that corresponds to your name or corresponds to some um, exciting conversation. And that alerts higher order executive circuits to, this this guy's talking to you about this basketball game he just went to. Forget about that for just a moment because somebody is talking about money and I want to hear this stock tip or I just heard someone say my name and it will override that. Now, you you, you mentioned... um, the loop, and that's exactly why we have a loop. So higher order circuits are sending a signal back down to the cochlea, just like we send a signal to our eyes to focus on something that's near or far or left and right. We tell our body, this, this is the signal that I'm interested in right now. Hone in on that. See if you can suppress the activity that comes from something I'm not interested in. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. And I think this is where training, education, experience can have a massive impact on developing an ear, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I've been podcasting for 10 years. I can hear things, I think, that people who maybe aren't as into the medium 
literally can't because they're not attuned to, you know, those particular sort of sounds or those differences. Just like someone who is a concert violinist can hear things in other, you know, violin performances that I can't hear. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the that and that to me is the is the musicality of listening. And you know, how it is that do we, you know, how is it people develop this kind of an ear? Does it happen by chance? You know, working with musicians like Prince or, you know, talking to Miles Davis. I mean, there's lots of really spectacular musicians who didn't go through a formal music theory training program. I don't know if either of those two did, but they develop their ear, you know, by listening, by doing. Um, And so, so can you tell us a little bit about how does that work? How does a how do you craft a really good ear? Ah, there's so much good stuff in there in that question. So when we're young, our auditory system, this is something I didn't know until fairly recently, our auditory system hasn't even finished developing. It's not even fully online until just before puberty, age eight to 12. And that's when the brain says, all right, I got to tighten down these last nuts and bolts because all hell is about to break loose with puberty here. I got other things to worry about. So let's get on with it. But in the first 10 or 12 years of our lives, we're learning spatial localization, amplitude modulation and detecting that in a signal and detecting frequency modulation and gap detection and all that. Little kids actually don't hear all that well. I mean, there's nothing wrong with their ears. They don't, they can't compute the signal very well. So for most of us, unless we have formal musical lessons, that's where our music listening development basically stops. Kids are about 11 years old uh, perform music perception tasks about the same as adults unless they have formal musical training and or, to a lesser extent, um, uh, foreign languages, bilingual. So if they're taking music lessons, their auditory system is getting more and more developed and they become what I like to call auditory athletes. So the auditory nerve bundle grows some extra branches. They get more dendritic spines, more more branches on on the nerve. The nuclei that I talked about a moment ago get fatter and thicker, and musicians, trained musicians, are really good at listening analytically, as I'm sure you can do, listening analytically and detecting real subtle differences in sounds. Now, you would have thought that as a recording engineer, I'd have that ability too. But no, I was disappointed to learn that I don't have that ability because once that clay starts to harden, not having had music lessons in my youth, I can't listen analytically. I don't have the neural architecture. I can listen synthetically to the global whole of a record. So that's actually, for record producers, a little bit of an advantage. So I've developed an ear that allows me to hear intentionality in a vocal performance or in a bass performance or a drum performance or a guitar solo. I, I Because I can't pick it apart to the same extent that you can, I'm pretty good at hearing the big picture. Uh, I would like to be able to listen analytically, but since I can't, I'm good with what I've got. Now, developing an ear to hear music performance That does require an awful lot of listening, and it also requires having expert friends kind of walk you through 
with their hearing and point out, this is what's great about this performance. Knowledge greatly mediates our perceptions. That's well established now. Yeah, and that's sort of what I like to say is the difference between purposeful practice, where you're trying really hard to get better at something, but you don't have a guide, and deliberate practice, (laughs) where you have an expert who's helping you. So I want to, you, you have these sort of seven dimensions that you write about in your book of the listener profile. And four are the kind that I think are a little bit more predictable, melody, rhythm, lyrics, and timbre. And we can talk about those. And then three are the ones that I think most of us don't really understand how we hear. Um, authenticity, realism, and well, now I'm blanking on the seventh. <laughs> Novelty versus novelty, novelty. Sorry, of yeah. course, of course, novelty. Yes. So I want to actually start you, and, and as you do in your book, is to talk about authenticity. Like, how do we? What does that mean? And how do we hear it? And why is it important? Ah, um, of these seven dimensions of any type of record in any style of music, um, these any one of these aspects of of the record can independently of the others give you a sonic treat, a little release of dopamine and make you say, oh, I love that record. So you you might you might love certain records in your collection just for the groove, just for the rhythm. You might like other records in your collection for the lyrical message and other records for the melodies, other records for the sound design, other records for um, your cognitive appraisal of them. That would be novelty and familiarity. You might say, no, I, I just love music in this style and that's why I love this new bluegrass record, or wow, that was really innovative. I never would have thought of that. That's why I love this record. Um, Realism and abstraction has to do with with visualizations. Uh, I like to, when I listen to my favorite music, I like to visualize the performers. So I like records made with real musical instruments and real human beings. But um, other people prefer abstract records that are made in the box or made entirely with software where there's no instrument there. So we have our preferences. Authenticity, though, is the one dimension that I learned more about in the recording studio than in the laboratory. Authenticity refers to where you perceive the performance gestures as coming from and whether or not you perceive them as being felt, intentional. Is that singer singing her heart out or is she just going through the motions? Is that guitar player playing a solo that he's suddenly inspired by and inventing right here on the spot? Or is he just playing notes that he's played elsewhere a million times? Where do you sense this performance is coming from? Some of us have a preference for music that we might label cerebral, music that comes, shall we say, from the neck up, because it's just so damn brilliant, just so damn brilliant. And that part of your brain that appreciates great virtuosity can say, wow, that just killed me. How do you get to sing like that? How do you get to be like that? Other times, or other people might have a preference that uh, for music that just seems to come straight from the heart or straight from the gut or straight from the groin. Someone can, a bar band, for example, can play, but if they play it in the right context and with the right gusto, that can feel great. Not because it's brilliant, but it just might appeal to another sort of craving that you're experiencing right 
experiencing right now, which could be lust, or it could be um, you want your heartstrings pulled. Um, this is what we mean by authenticity, is, is your perception that that music performance was genuine and was coming from a place of authenticity or sincerity in the performer. You know, there's this, there's this, and I'm going to butcher it. There's this quote, you know, from some Hollywood exec that said, like, you know, the key to a great acting performance is, you know, sincerity, and if if you can fake that, you've made you've made it. Uh, so I wonder if you could if you could talk about do do people agree? Like, is there something in the sound wave that we can point to and say, aha, that sounds authentic, or is it subjective? Like, would could could you if you take a hundred people? And they all listen to the sound wave. Is it going to be 50-50? Is it going to be 85-15? Like, how do people agree? And can we quantify or qualify yeah. what that is? Great, great question. And that's why I prefaced its explanation by saying that of the seven dimensions, that's the one I know more about from the studio than I know from my, my neuroscience studies. So yeah, it's a great question. And I think the answer is kind of maybe. It is subjective. Authenticity is subjective, but I believe that authenticity, uh, learning to detect it, is something that can be learned. You can develop an ear for it. And that's what makes record producers successful or not at their job. So you're record producer, right? You're in the control room. The musicians are on the other side of the glass. You've just heard a performance and there are technically no wrong notes. And every note was in time. And all sounds okay. Is that the one? Is that the take? Is that going to be it? You have to learn to hear intentionality in that performance. When I worked with the great producer, uh, Tony Berg, I was his engineer. I learned a lot about production from him. And one of the most frequent feedback bits that he'd give the band the other side of the glass is he'd lean on that talk back button and he'd say, hey, dig in, dig in, meaning that the band has gone through the motions enough times and he can hear that they're bored. They're bored. Come on, grab that instrument and talk to me, communicate with that instrument. I want to hear intentionality from each and every one of you. Um, the, the, the researcher Ellen Winner at Boston University is looking at that with painting. And uh, she has shown that people can look at an abstract painting and say whether or not it was done by an artist or done by a four-year-old. Because you know how sometimes you see abstract art and people say, oh, my kid could have done that. Actually, no, your kid couldn't have done that. Because when children's abstract art is shown to viewers, we can tell. On some level, we can tell, call it a gut instinct or whatever, but these small gestures add up to or point back to an intention to communicate something. Humans are pretty good at picking up on it. Yeah, and, and <laughs> there's obviously a lot of uh, chatter right now about these various AI art generators. It'll be interesting to see how that, if, if, and, you know, if and how that might shift uh, in the next decade. But I want to talk a little bit about the four dimensions that I think most of us are familiar with in terms of music. And you just have this great analogy of sort of the different body parts that are associated with these, like, say, in a record. So, so tell us about that. Yeah, this is the kind of, kind of thing we talk about in the recording studio when you're making a record. You talk about music because it's the love of your life and you're raising a musical baby here and it's really all you're interested in. And 
So there you go. So um, we talk about sometimes melody as being the heart of a record because, as Prince would say, Beethoven had nary a drum kit. It's not like Beethoven needed a funky drummer or lyrics. Um, Melody itself can just make us swoon. It can melt our hearts. It can convey power or strength or even subtle emotions like jealousy or or even disgust. Uh, melodies are, are, are kind of going straight to our hearts wordlessly. Rhythm, of course, is a record's hips because rhythm on a popular record or even on a classical record is going to get uh, your body to want to move in a certain way. It might be up and down, might be front to back, might be side to side, might be syncopated or not in that groove, but you're going to want to move a certain way to it. So uh, rhythm is music's hips. Definitely lyrics would be music's head or music's brain because that's words and language is human beings most, it's our most clever skill. And with all these words we have, uh, lyrics cause us to think things we might have never thought before. They give us solutions to problems that we needed at the moment. And we say the timbre is a record's face because the timbre of individual instruments says something about, well, allows you to visualize. It says something about, about who played it and or what was being played. You can tell the difference between a guitar and a violin. But not only that, you have associations for these certain timbres. And uh, a tack piano, let's say, is going to evoke different images than a Bosendorfer or a Steinway grand piano will evoke. So timbres... Uh, Conjure, timbre conjures up memories because there's so many associations with uh, having heard that, that those sounds in the past. And I think that's just a beautiful way to help people understand their own musical preferences. You know, why you can love one album because you just love the timbre and the face of it. Um, but, you know, maybe you don't really love the lyrics. Maybe they're a bit, you know, derivative in your mind, etc. And then you can have another album that actually hits all four. And then it just becomes this like, just blast of, you know, reward in your brain that it's so satisfying. I love when that happens. <laughs> I just yeah. I just love that. I'm thinking right now of one that I mentioned in the book and it just makes me swoon. Just even thinking about it and playing it in my head from memory makes me think, oh, so good. I mean, I think for a lot of people, me included, Purple Rain is, is one oh. of those. But um, I just want to remind our listeners that Susan Rogers' book cooperated with, uh, with O.G. Ogus. Is that how you pronounce uh, their name? Ogi, Ogi, August. Yeah. Uh, this is what it sounds like. What the music you love says about you is available at booksellers everywhere and would make a great uh, holiday gift for anyone, including um, those of your family and friends who don't consider themselves musicians but still are passionate about music. This will really, I think, make them feel seen and heard and um, uh, appreciated. And I want to sort of end with like, you know, what the music you love says about you part of it. I want, you know, I, I, I want to delve a little bit back into the neuroscience, um, if we could, if we could for a minute, to uh, pull together sort of what we talked about at the beginning of the episode about this sort of, you know, the, the, the very uh, beginnings of how we perceive sound, and then how that relates to our sense of self, and uh, the default mode network. And so maybe you could tell us about the default mode network, how, you know, how it works, and then um, the role of the little gatekeeper. 
Yeah. So the subtitle turns out to be a little bit misleading because sometimes people have asked me, okay, these are the records that I like. What does that say about me? And what my intention was, and I didn't pull it off, my intention was to give you the language so you can tell me what the music you love says about you. You tell me about the melodies you like and the realism that you like on a record or the abstraction or whatever. So the reason we do this is because music listening is private. No one else is up there in our heads. No one else can see what we see in our mind's eye or experience what we're feeling when we're listening to a record that we love. So uh, neuroscience has recently started investigating something that they call the default network. The default network is a collection of brain nuclei and their interconnections that turn on and get active whenever we go into our own heads. And if you ask people, are you thinking about something other than what you're doing right now? 30 to 50% of the time, people say yes. We're in our own heads a lot. That's what a brain does. It focuses on the outside world and goes back to the inside world. Outside, inside, back and forth all day long. It's a good thing. But the default network, it turns out, gets really excited, really happy, really active when we're listening to a record we love. So a record that you like, and especially your favorite records, will light up that default network and cause you to turn inward and go to that private place in your psyche where you and that record are essentially alone together. It's such a beautiful thing to think about. It's conjuring up memories and feelings, making you want to move a certain way, making you want to sing along or not. That's your private world. Now, you mentioned the precunius, because that little thing, it's um, like in most of our brain structures, we've got two of them, one on the left, one on the right. And the one on the right has got a very important job to do. It's not part of the default network, but it's connected to the network. So it's kind of like a little bit of a gatekeeper. The little precunius is very important for creative thought. If you need to do something creative, whether it's design a poster or a t-shirt or just whatever, uh, the precunius has to get active because it has to open its little gates that are normally shut, open those gates and allow new ideas to flow. It's essential for creativity. Anyway, Robin Wilkins at Wake Forest University ran a brilliant fMRI experiment where she had participants come in and bring with them into the, into the lab, bring some records you like, bring a favorite record, and bring some music you dislike. And she watched their active brains as they're listening to these three categories of music. And the little precunies get all excited and connected to the uh, default network when people were listening to liked and favorite music. But when they listen to music they dislike, the precunia said, no, do not want. And it cut itself off from the default network. And as Robin Wilkins wrote, it became connected primarily just to itself. In other words, it's like, get away, get away, stay away from me. I don't want this. I won't integrate this record that I dislike in my psyche. That's a really astonishing finding. Because it's saying to us, and we know from other studies, that our auditory brain and our, our musical brain is shaping itself over time to get more and more and more fine-tuned. This work has been done also in, in the last decade or so. We now know that when you get those dopamine hits from listening to music that you like, when you get that opiate release, um, 
or lack of opiates, music that gives you chills or doesn't, that's shaping your auditory cortex to get better and faster at recognizing the music of you that belongs in your private headspace. And uh, so (laughs) if we want to open our minds and our ears to learning a new type of music that we previously disliked, we got to find a way to convince that little precunious that it needs to connect to the default network. From personal experience, and this is where I'm stepping out of uh, empirical research reports and stepping into personal experience, but my personal experience tells me this happens when we're experiencing a little bit of love, a little bit of dopamine. So let's say, for instance, um, well, I'll I'll describe... uh, I love my students at Berkeley College of Music. And the first semester I was there, I I met a couple of kids, Andrew and Alex, who turned me on to American hardcore. It's kind of like a more sophisticated version of punk. I never would have paid any attention to it before. I would have turned it off if it had been in earshot. These guys love this music so much. And they taught me how to listen to it. And together we form like a triangle. They loved this music. I loved them, and so the third leg of the triangle formed where their generosity, their sweetness in sharing this music that they loved with me caused me to feel good. And as I felt good while listening, it may have convinced the little precunious, this is not poison, it will not kill you. Be cool. Just listen. And, and, and as a result, I learned to like hardcore. Other students did that for me with uh, electronic music. Um, you can change your mind, but it, it takes a, a, little bit of a, a little bit of persuading. I mean, I think that's such a beautiful way, too, to go into the holiday season, where, of course, music plays a big role no matter what you celebrate. Uh, when people get together, there's often music involved. And if it's music that you don't like, Maybe seek out the people that you love who love that music to help you connect. And um, it's, yeah, it's just, uh, it's such a beautiful sentiment. And Susan Rogers, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. I could talk to you forever. (laughs) Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on, letting me talk about this wonderful topic that I love so well. And uh, and I, I I'm I'm very grateful, and I hope people do uh, take a closer listen to the music that they love best, and go into that little private space in your head, and try to analyze what it is about this record that just makes you weak in the knees. You'll discover something about yourself in the process. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening, and if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, 
and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.